Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for episode 350, what the bleep is going on in our food system. In today's episode, we're going to cover gene editing technology in meat, cell cultured chicken, GMOs, fires occurring in food processing plants, which are in turn driving up prices and other technological advances that may not in fact be moving us forward, but further from health. Yes. Also in today's episode, we will of course be covering steps and measures that you can take to eradicate from this industrialized, centralized food system. So essentially what you can do about ensuring that you have food security in your household, sourcing of quality whole foods, and where you need to be vigilant, as well as how to make consumer-based choices to help to support food security in your household and even throughout your community. You know, we'll, in today's episode, definitely uncover this concept that generally when we move away from nature or God's pure natural design to man trying to play God, we tend to get into trouble. Yes. And I think that's a really easy way to simplify just about anything. I forget who I borrowed it from, but um, I've been saying to clients a lot lately, eat God food, not man food, right? And it's like that plain (laughs) And yes. simple. Yes. Um, and we're not crazy conspiracy theories theorists here. Yeah. We're, we're going to talk about the real evidence that all this is happening and what you can do to kind of shore up your own household today. Yeah. And we'll even dig into history back into World War II. Uh, you know, so I know we've talked about being a locavore, the importance of trying to eat within a 150 mile radius, but just kind of unpacking how we got here, I think will be a really interesting conversation. So before we get into that, I want to take pause and have a word from Wild Foods, which is an excellent sponsor for today's episode. Wild Foods is absolutely God-made foods, even though in the word wild, that they're looking at trying to find real food, real ingredients that are sourced from small farms around the world. All of their products are going to be preservative-free, free of gluten and soy, and many of them are going to be organic. All of their products are going to be as close to the single ingredient with least amount of its edible heart parts removed. So that follows our guidelines of eating what would be called a whole food. And they believe just like us, that real food is medicine. You can go on over to wildfoods.co, that's .co, and use the word Allie Miller RD at checkout as a coupon code. That's A-L-I-M-I-L-L-E-R-R-D at checkout. You'll get 12% off of your order. Some of our favorite items to pick up from Wild Foods tend to be pantry staples, anything from their wild hand-harvested vanilla bean powder, which I love to use in baking and smoothies as a great way to create that nostalgic warming flavor sensation without the alcohol extraction. I also am a big fan of Wild Foods Matcha. 
They've recently come out with an organ blend that we just gave to participants of our Wimberley Wellness Workshop, and that went over really well. So this is flexible. This can be used in things like meatballs. This can be incorporated into a smoothie at a teaspoon. You won't even taste it. Um, and a great way to add nature's multivitamin to up nutrient density in dishes. And this is sourced from grass-fed cows and includes a four-gland blend. They also have a beautiful product called Cocotropics, which was another give out to our participants. Cocotropics is a nootropic or a brain enhancing compound featuring maca, wild harvested turmeric, and cacao or raw chocolate. And then they add in chaga mushroom extract. And this serves as a way to support as an adaptogen for stress resilience and tolerance. It's anti-inflammatory, antioxidant rich. It sips like a hot cocoa, or you can make a mocha with an iced coffee and maybe raw milk as a beautiful midday pick me up. Go on over to wildfoods.co, check out all of their varieties of teas and spices and uh, even coffees, et cetera, as the best options available to stay close to real whole foods and support their mission to seriously to fix the broken food system just like we believe is important as well so wildfoods.co ali miller rd at checkout all right let's do it so before we get into even the newer kind of franken foods and the new kind of cutting edge technologies that are adulterating our foods let's let's first just go into and lay some groundwork and some history of how we got here. So starting kind of back World War II, you said was the real big shift. Yeah. I mean, when I was looking into history of fertilizer, it really depends on how you define the word fertilizer. Like we could say that we've used fertilizers for centuries. Um, and this would be though used in like fish meal or manure, sure. right? And then really in the early 1900s is when we started to get obsessed with the NPK craze or really just focusing on nitrogen, potassium, and um, focusing on phosphorus. And when we dumbed down the amount of nutrients that are required for soil for those synthetic compounds, we started to get in trouble. There were a lot of incentives actually in the early 1900s to get individuals to move out to rural areas and to start harvesting and cropping and tilling. Tilling was a huge principle which led to the big dust storms that we saw. And then in World War II, there was a huge shift to confined animal farming. Also around World War II is where we saw a big shift in DDT being applied to crops. So as far as animal farming, up until World War II, you know, we really allowed most animals to be grazers and they were going to be in large open grasslands and these animals were viable as ruminants until they were slaughtered but we had a surplus of antibiotics after the war and so a couple different physicians and ranchers and individuals in the food industry started to play with giving animals prophylactic antibiotics in their feed at the same time they also started to provide synthetic urea as a source of protein instead of providing grasses for this animals so we started to see a lot of the kofa operations picking up and the pastures being abandoned in 1957 we saw the first hormone implant for cattle to increase growth and weight 
And in the 1970s, grasslands were moving into rapidly monoculture row crops. And this was tearing up our soil and sterilizing our soil with more amendments or add-ins to the soil and not allowing that cyclical impact of the cows laying their maneuver to serve as compost to support the microbial activity we were seeing more sterilized monoculture farming in the 1990s we started to use in cattle beta antagonists as growth producers so growth hormone compounds and at this point we're seeing our meat industry controlled predominantly by four different countries and they are not even all from the u.s which is concerning we know 17 percent of our beef in the u.s comes from china and that has increased by about 10 million pounds per month from last year and all of that is really frightening i think you know knowing that four companies are controlling the majority of our food when we give all of that power to these big companies things are going to go wrong. Absolutely. Um, So I think before we go any deeper, let's discuss um, some policy and the U.S. agency control of food systems. For instance, some of the limitations for processing on site, how agents like DFA um, can threaten livelihood and ultimately, you know, shut down quality producers. Yeah. The concern is, is that even in as early as the seventies, we started to governmentally really side with corporate power and control in the food system. And when we centralize, then we tend to put a lot of small scale producers out of business. And it's kind of like this go big and do it our way or get out type of movement. And actually I saw this even when I was just starting to learn about food and you know the farm to table movement back in uh, my early days in Houston I think it was like 2010 or so there was a non-homogenized dairy that I used to buy at the farmers market and then they did do some raw dairy as well at that point I'm not sure the exact percentage but they were selling some of their milk to the dairy farm association because they didn't have enough direct to consumer sales to support their growth And what happened was the Dairy Farm Association, when they would sell them their beautiful grass-fed Jersey milk, they would just mix these into vats with COFA, you know, uh, you know, A1 instead of A2 cow milk, um, ultra heat pasteurize it, and basically take this beautiful, rich product and denature and devalue the nutrient density. And they ended up getting to a space of growth where the Dairy Farm Association said, we need 50% or more of your milk production, or we're going to release your contract. And so they got in this kind of sinkhole where they only wanted to provide 30 or so percent of their production to the Dairy Farm Association. They were getting less money, obviously, per sell to this big conglomerate over direct consumer sales, but they couldn't make up that variable. And so they had to go ahead and give all to the DFA and stop the direct to consumer farming. And it's so wild. It's, yeah, shutting down small businesses. I actually worked for the main governing body of the farmer's markets at the time. And I remember when our dairy farmer could no longer come and do yeah. what he was doing. It and was what so a, sad. What a gangster threat, you know? It's like us or no one. And, right. and there's really no loss of competition that the Dairy Farm Association would have right. of those direct sales, which is absurd. Um, I know it's that this- a, It's a cartel, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this has also happened to friends and ranchers that I work with at my market. Um, for instance, if you make a certain quota and you're sharing with the government your revenue and sales, 
if you reach a certain scalability, then you can't process your meats on site. So even if you have the skill set to butcher your animals direct on site, they want you sending, for instance, chicken to a processing facility. So one of the farms that I love working with is no longer selling their chicken because all of the processing facilities in their area are dipping them in bleach and they're not able to sign off of that. And yet they're in this hard point of they're worried that governmentally they'd get shut down if they tried to process on their own. Then there's smaller operations that haven't met that quote revenue and they're able to process their birds on site and they're able to, you know, provide that with like an affidavit on their label. Um, but still it's, it's this hindrance to scalability, but then they're, they're stiffened and they're not able to make that growth leap. Right. And it's so wild that someone could be doing everything right up until the processing and then they go and dip this beautiful meat into bleach like what the bleep and many (laughs) chickens actually that are from america which we're eating a lot of Mm non-american chicken by the way um but they actually go all the way overseas to china to be processed that's absolute insanity when you talk about sequestering carbon and the impact of our environment right Okay. And, and in and of itself, we're looking at, you know, this privatization for profit and corporate control of food. That is probably one of the biggest concerns here. And then, you know, we'll start to see technology shifting by the decade. Um, but if we have centralized control with less competition, less patriots or real Americans making food here, Mm -hmm. there's less power in those small family farms and ranches and Again, we're kind of handcuffed to the man and these big production plants and chemical factories for our food. Yeah, I mean, that's the the thing, you know. So it's easy to explain why Americans are sick, why medications are on the rise, and that's because big food companies are often owned by big pharma companies. I don't know, many people don't know that Monsanto sold in 2018 and Roundup is owned by Bayer now. Yep. Um, and so that allows, when, when they make these big conglomerate merges or sales like that, that can also release liability from past injuries. There's a lot of loopholes, but we do know that big food and big pharma continue to cyclically feed each other. They keep this cycle going of eternal cash flow, right? A sick population is going to drive revenue in the sick care model of medicine and a sick food system continues to perpetuate overeating without nutrient density, more consumer purchasing, more need for medications. Um, you know, so until we really have this aha light bulb bulb coming on about stopping living focused on convenience, we'll start to continue to see mitochondrial toxicity, the increase of all forms of chronic illness, whether we're talking autoimmune, neurological, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, of course. And the concern is that we're not having the hard conversation on a political level and on a country level about the fact that too many individuals are being duped and literally eating fake foods empty calories, and they're not neutral. They actually have endocrine disrupting compounds. These are chemical shitstorms that are toxic and disease causing, and big pharma and big ag can sit back watching us consume these ultra processed foods, watching our soil deplete and die, joyfully knowing that they're just going to create chicken in a tissue culture and they don't even need land to do so. Right. And you're creating, you know, a client or a patient for life in that sense. Um, And not to mention that dietitians like us who stand up against this are being demonized because, you know, we're saying that not all food fits and we're not saying that health can be at any size. Right. Right. 
Absolutely. Okay, so we've talked about the shifts in meat with the World War II timeline. Um, so about a decade later, we were you know, heavily focused on production and monocropping and starting to apply those you know, soil amendments more than ever with unsustainable outcomes because yes. the more you take from the soil, you've got to be putting something yes. back on it or in yes. it. Um, and really that excessive production of these monocrops of corn, wheat, and rice. Yes, soy came in later. Um, but you know, post-World War II, corn, wheat, and rice were the big ones. And they had a much higher production level, which is why they were incentivized governmentally. And this was during the time of the Green Revolution. And I'll use air quotes there because it was a huge facade for sure. And there were new types of hybridized seeds coming out at this time. And this drove increased nitrogen absorbing potential, which basically created a high response varietal of the maize or corn, wheat, and rice. And we know that this is where often we saw supply monopolies. This is where we started to see already the concerns of heirloom seeds going to the wayside, right? We started losing the expectation of natural design of seeing, you know, more seeds, for instance, in fruits and such, and really kind of dumbing down the genetics. And this was through more of a hybridization approach, not at this point yet, of course, genetic modification. Um, but just in that timestamp, we started to see supply monopolies present and a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And although a lot of the names that were around in the 60s and 50s are no longer in existence, Existence, they've been sold into over time holding companies under known brand names like AstraZeneca was a big one that kept coming up when I was looking at research through these fertilizing companies and different soil amendment companies. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's one of those things you just follow the money. And right. It kind of tells you all you need to know. Yes. And, you know, at the same time, there is insult to injury because on September 6th of 1958, in the government, we passed the Food Additives Amendment, and this was signed into law with a list of, at that time in 1958, 700 food substances that were exempt from the then new requirement that manufacturers test food additives before putting them on the market. So again, 700 got written in exempt with no testing. And then I, what I said is that the manufacturers now, current to date, manufacturers are the ones that are held responsible to ensure that their chemical is quote unquote safe. So if the company that's making money on adding this chemical into our food is the one proving safety, think of the amount of data that they're filtering through that they don't share with private and public interest groups. Right. We know how that goes in the research world, you know, yes. um, when someone is funding the study, they have a vested interest in the outcomes of said study. Yes. And so DDT had hit in the industrialized farming time, you know, right around World War II. Um, in the 1970s is when DDT was banned. And at that time, Monsanto came out with Roundup. And, you know, that herbicide led to, of course, all sorts of problems. There are a lot of different research studies now looking at glyphosate, which is the active compound in Roundup, serving as an obesogen or a weight gaining molecule that disrupts mitochondrial function as well as insulin sensitivity. We've seen that the glyphosate can drive cancer. 
Um, and we know that it can play a role in disrupting hormone and sterilizing the soil. The DDT itself, actually, we've seen still residual impacts in our environment, and that in itself had an estrogen-mimicking molecule influence. Um, like I said, Bayer sold to Monsanto for $63 billion in 2018, and there's an organization FHRMA, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. This is a trade association that represents companies in the pharmaceutical industry. And when I was looking at spending back in 2022, they were the top individual lobbying spender in the industry, spending $29.2 million for lawmakers to side with them. That's weird. Yeah. And it keeps getting weirder, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry has spent in total over $100 million on lobbying just last year. And um, we know that a lot of this is in defense of suits for individuals that are trying to claim that a chemical should be removed from the food system or, again, to get different things passed. Okay. Um, and then we're talking gene editing technology hitting our meats, um, most using this CRISPR technology. So let's talk about that and how this is going to impact our food. Where is this going to first start showing up? Yeah. So, you know, we have already taken prior to gene technology. Uh, I love how Michael Pollan says it and I'll probably botch it, but he talks about how a cow was developed to be this solar powered machine, right? Using the sun and water and grasses. And it was this beautiful closed circuit system and how now a cow is become reliant on pharma because mm -hmm. a quarter pound of antibiotics are added into its feed. It's reliant on fossil fuels. It's reliant on corn. Um, and it needs those prophylactic antibiotics because of the dingy environments of confined animal farming, right? So the cow's guts don't have active microbes. They're not using their rumination tank and they're going into ketoacidosis from too high of a carb diet. And so we keep them on high antibiotics in the confined animal model to prevent them from going basically into kidney failure. Um, and so we, we know that something's wrong and then we're just amending, amending, amending sure. and adding. Yep. And so this CRISPR technology, it stands for clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. And I, I'm not even going to try to know what that means, but it's a gene editing technology essentially. And there are a lot of scientists currently and some food safety advocates that are questioning the safety of this mechanism. It's used in a lot of different products. And the goal with gene editing in livestock is to produce desirable traits for improved food production as a viable strategy to help feed the planet's growing population. And this is a quote from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Um, it's used by the Washington State University researchers. It's backed by investors like Bill Gates. And not, um, not suspicious at all. Right. And, and right. <laughs> and um, the idea is that these gene edited meats could absolutely be mass produced for human consumption within 10 years. Um, the CRISPR basically acts as a precise pair of molecular scissors, if you will. 
and it will cut a DNA sequence that is directed by a customizable guide. Now, there's some concerns that the risk of gene editing can create knockoff effects on animals that we can't anticipate until maybe decades later, um, that this could impact the health and function of the animal. Like again, when we took them away from grasses and we had to add more meds, add more things, um, that this could drive deformities and changes in the function of genes of the animal and absolutely impact the nutrient density of certain nutrients that we aren't yet measuring, right? So we just got into the world of these third tier nutrients of phytocompounds, antioxidants, things like anandamide, which is seen in red meat as a molecule very closely mimicking cannabidiol. And I think that, you know, when we look at these studies, they're really looking at just uh, really a raw protein assessment of grams of protein. Um, and we've talked about this when we've dug into things like Beyond Burger. We're not doing that in today's episode because that's more in our like, um, I forget the name of that one, but we'll have to link it. Aunt Lori did all mm-hmm. of the like the the le- legume heme yeah, and yeah. some of those other ingredient additives. It was like right around Christmas time, a couple yes. of years back. I'll make sure I link it in today's show notes. I yes. don't recall. It was like um, vegan foods are feeding the processed food industry or something yeah. like that. Vegan, yeah, veganism as a byproduct of processed foods. I sure, but the something. concern is now, in theory, you know, and we already have seen. We'll talk cult- cell cultured chicken it's already being sold in the United States of America. And so you might think that you're eating a single ingredient food, but you could be eating a Franken genetically modified food as well. Um, And the concern again is that the gene editing could bring unintended DNA damage and this could target our own cells with unknown downstream consequences. There just has not been the test of time through handoff of familial history and growth to see that these have been tested properly and that they are safe. Yeah. And it sounds like this could just go on a menu, you know, as beef and we wouldn't know that we were eating anything else. Yeah. And there was a report that was published in the Journal of Genetics and Genomics in 2020, and it found that the CRISPR gene editing in rice, which seems to me maybe less volatile, less concerning than animal protein, right? That this resulted in numerous unintended and undesirable on-target and off-target mutations. Um, So this is not by any means a perfect technology. Um, And when we look at, you know, people like philanthropists with air quotes like Bill Gates that are looking at this being a way to solve, um, you know, food deserts or food insecurity, there's not a lack of food production. And we see that in economic resources and studies time and time. It's getting the resources to the populations due to war, due to poverty. It's not a lack of food. There's so much food waste currently. Um, And so I just don't see this at all logically solving any of those problems. No. And I think back to like trying to clone Dolly the sheep and how that all went down. <laughs> like they yeah. weren't very successful. So this doesn't sound like a good idea. Yeah. So we really want to avoid, to be clear, a situation where our food supply ends up entirely patented, which is freaky, and owned by big corporations. And there are patents on this CRISPR technology, mostly owned by Corteva. Um, Another patent owner used to be Monsanto and now is Bayer. And again, there's a lot of these private investors that are making money off of these technological patents. And this makes the food then not free. Um, You can't produce without paying that patented individual to produce even on your own land. 
Hmm. Interesting. Yes. Um, let's talk. So that's still, you know, CRISPR would still be at least it's like a real animal. Right? Yes. Um, let's but it would talk, be the genetics, yeah, right? Like the genetics you're modifying. So they're doing like IVF with the yes, cows exactly. and messing with the, the genes kind of prior to that and kind yes. of selecting for the de- desirable With their traits. insemination and such. Right, yes. Right. And, you know, I mean, again, just like we started with vegetables, we have been hybridizing animals. Sure. I mean, look at the doodle, look at the labradoodle yep. that everyone yep. loves. Um, and so, you know, there's that kind of good, better, best of like, what is a natural selection? And when we do hybridize, there tends to be weak traits. We know that with those, those dogs that are, sorry, no offense to anyone. What are the little ones with the pugs that always have all like the respiratory issues and the things? Are they just pugs? I don't know. Uh, the ones uh, that everyone loves. Frenchies. Yes, those Frenchies. They're always sick. Like every right. person I know that has had one. Their noses um, don't work. There's weak genes. Yeah. Um, when you try to play God, like yeah. let the animals do their thing. Yeah. Um, but I do know we can use genetics in our favor to know what types of crops are maybe resistant sure. um, to drought. Or, you know, I know for instance, a rancher I use uses a certain genetic of cow from Africa because it's very, very drought resistant right. in Texas. Right. Um, but this is not Petri dish, you know, actually scrambling and cutting at the strands of DNA level. It's more selective breeding, which has gone on forever. And I think that has stood the test of time. Yes. How it works naturally too. Um, So let's now chat on something that's not (laughs) a real cow um, or chicken, cell cultivated meat, or I guess more accurately, true Petri dish meat. Yes. So Good Meat, this is a company that has come out on the market recently. Um, and this is their About Us. I just have to read it to you to give you a little bit of context. So, so Good Meat is real meat made without tearing down a forest or taking a life. We are the first and only company in the world to sell cultivated meat. Our first product is Good Meat Cultivated Chicken, which Singapore has approved for sale and is currently available at selected restaurants. There was a chef that's a big animal rights activist, and there was a list of 12 different restaurants of his in the United States of America that are already using this good meat. And I would guess that, you know, this guy's proud and he's probably putting it on the the menu, like, you know, good meat featured. Uh Um, But just to know that it's already legal to do so is concerning. It hasn't hit, you know, mass production. The FDA has said that the lab-grown chicken is safe to eat. But good meat is still waiting on approval from the agricultural department before it can sell direct to consumers. And, um, you know, but, but just in Monday, it was a Monday in March, I think it was March 29th, if I recall, is when the FDA cleared the cultured cell chicken material <laughs> made by good meat to be safe to consume as human food. And even that just sounds like so robotic and wrong. No, thank you. And please give me the list of those restaurants so I can make sure to avoid them at all costs. No doubt. And, you know, so good meat, if it sounds kind of like it rings a bell with something, it's connected to Eat Just. Um, And Eat Just had some board and infrastructure changes recently. Um, Back in 2017, Just Egg was starting to be sold to restaurants Mm -hmm. um, and also in national retail stores hitting in 2019. And it says that it has sold the equivalent of 250 million chicken eggs while raising more than 800 million in funding from investors, including Bill Gates. Here he is again. Um, And also Mark 
Benoff, which is another Microsoft co-founder under Paul Allen's Vulcan Capital. Um, there's a lot of trends of these grasps of money and corporate control. And I didn't get the stats on this, but you may have heard that Bill Gates in 2020 and 21 and 22 has been gobbling up farmland. Um, and so again, not only is he going for replacing the real foods with chemical shitstorms, but he's also trying to control the access to produce and grow real foods to eliminate the competition, essentially. Right. He's one of the biggest landowners in the United States, if not the biggest yeah. at this point. Yep. Scary stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's been talking for a while now. There was a quote from February of 2021 on Valentine's Day. Um, so, no, I don't think the poorest 80 countries will be eating synthetic meat. I do think all the rich countries should move to 100% synthetic meat. Um, and when we look at something like Just Egg, I want to read off or maybe, yeah, let's read off the ingredients of Just Egg. I've done this on like Instagram when I look at products. It's like, okay, so here's an egg. It is actually like, um, I don't know what the word is that I want to say. It just seems like it should be illegal to be called Just Egg. Like what's some marketing BS? Um, because it is far from just an egg. Um, it starts off with water, mung bean protein isolate. So talk about lectins, um, expeller pressed canola oil. So you're getting an industrialized oxidized oil as the second actual, can I say nutritive ingredient or ingredient that contributes any impact of calories. Sugars are the third food ingredient with tapioca syrup solids and actual sugar, soy lecithin as an emulsifier, tetrasodium pyrophosphate, salt, gelin gum, potassium citrate, carotene to give it that, you know, nice yellow color, niacin, um, which is antibacterial, um, transglutaminase. Um, so that's going to have some of that MSG like property, which could drive neurological impact maltodextrin derived from corn as a caking and uh, additive agent, natural flavors, dehydrated onion and turmeric, and then it contains soy. So that's 18 ingredients plus, cause you don't know how many natural flavors are used to mimic just one perfect food ingredient, an egg. Um, and I know from when we researched for that vegan episode that they were doing all of this, like other genetic modified beef and trying to come out with like a genetically modified Wagyu situation. Mm -hmm. Um, back when we researched that, I was so freaked out by their yep. website, but it seems like that is coming to fruition. They're using the CRISPR technology and their cultured yeah. good meat company uses that same technology. Yes. Yep. And they are looking at Wagyu as their first beef entry product. Um, but again, just taking this like just egg and comparing it to an egg, you're going to be first off in the macronutrient world, you're actually getting carbs in the just egg from the sugar, whereas an actual egg, it sucks that you have to say an actual egg, but an actual egg made by a chicken is going to have zero grams of carbs. You're going to get quality essential fatty acids from that egg yolk. You're going to get choline. You're going to get six to seven grams of protein. And this just egg is not providing you the same amount of protein. It's providing you more carb and not providing you any of those micronutrients that you're going to be getting from that beautiful farm fresh egg. All right. I'm sufficiently freaked out. Um, let's talk produce. And that kind of transfers to talking, you know, grains into processed foods, of course. But yes. I also want to just call out the potential of mRNA gene therapy in 
meat and dairy and also in produce as well. Um, I know Jim Gale briefly touched on this on our episode a couple back on food forests. um, But when we were trying to find information for this episode, it was super sparse. A lot of fact checking came up for sure. Yes. Uh, and uh, same with actually all of the food fires, everything that would come up was like a rooters, you know, like false flag, mm-hmm. false flag, false flag. Uh, but since actually 2018, the industrial pork producers have been using a customizable mRNA based vaccine on their herd. It is happening. So not the COVID mRNA vaccination yet, but mRNA vaccines are being used currently in pork production. And according to Merrick, which is the drug maker, they say that these mRNA vaccines target existing and evolving swine pathogens, including diseases not covered by conventional swine vaccination. So this platform called Sequivity was introduced in 2018, developed by Merrick in partnership with Moderna, interesting. And it basically can produce endless customized vaccines um, that none of them have undergone safety testing. Um, This goes back again to giving the freedom to the producer over the public as far as looking at their safety. And so Americans have been eating pork likely treated with gene therapy for nearly five years. And um, even more of our meat supply is about to get that same treatment. The mRNA lipid nanoparticle, excuse me, the nanoparticles um, in these shots are also currently being used for avian influenza. Um, We know that there are mRNA shots that are in the works for cows. And there are a lot of lobbyists for the Cattlemen's Association that have confirmed that they intend to use mRNA vaccines in cattle um, and that this could become something that could affect both the dairy and beef industry. Again, because if this becomes an industrialized standard, then that becomes a requirement, which again, think back if pharma makes money on this and they can make this in a requirement just like if you think of childhood vaccinations that requirement puts guaranteed dollars in the pockets of the producers totally um, and it would be a requirement to be sold at like any of the big box stores exactly. so again you're, you're controlling these farms that even might want to do right or opt out of some of the vaccines and they can't Yes. If they want to sell at the bigger stores and make money. Yep. And so, you know, luckily there has been some positive movement as well in the world of, you know, American ranchers and growers and individuals that are really concerned about food freedom. Um, the Missouri House Bill of 1169 that was proposed would require labeling of products that could alter your genes. This would also require companies to share information about the potential transmissibility of gene-altering interventions and it would assert that fully informed consent must be given for all vaccines, gene therapies, and medical interventions. Um, but you know, when we look at both the nanoparticle and then the various uses of proteins, like for instance, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, even Pfizer's own documentations listed 158,000 recorded side effects. Yet these were all suppressed from public known consent. So there was no true informed consent when you were given your free French fries for your experimental injection, yet the producers knew the whole time. And, you know, many of these disease states and conditions that we're seeing on an influx have not been reported in 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 a response to vaccination because again this is an experimental injection it's not even classically the function of vaccination and then not to mention you know we get into the concern that 
could we use food for mass vaccination? And I know I'm starting to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but hey, we've got all these extra COVID shots. Where are they going to end up? Because people have kind of paused and stopped taking their right, boosters. Just like and the DDT. We're, we're not putting them in their kids. So where are they going to go? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is concern for certain of dairy um, as being a carrier, especially because dairy has more hormetic influence and the lipid elements of dairy. And um, that's the concern for, of course, all meats. Um, you know, Dr. Peter McCullough did a lot of work speaking out on medical freedom, and he really breaks down mRNA technology beautifully. Um, again, just to kind of maybe run over what's going on with mRNA technology, a natural RNA is made up of two purines, adenine and guanine, and these two pyri pyrimidines, cysteine and uracil. Um, and the replacement of uracil with its ribose ring uridine um, with an N1-methyl pseudouridine, which is a synthetic product, makes the genetic code for a spike protein to be better stabilized on a lipid nanoparticle. This makes this to be long-lasting, and it will also be efficient of invading cellular destruction and undergoing repeat reading for continued protein synthesis. So we saw that both Pfizer and Moderna chose development strategies to replace all of uridine's units with this pseudouridine in both of their types of their experimental injections. And this made that entire strand completely unnatural to the human body. And this is where, unfortunately, there was a gamble on how long this mRNA molecule would be in the human body. We had assumed by those producers that maybe it would be in the blood for about 28 days, but we're finding mRNA in the lymph nodes 60 plus days after injection. And none of the studies demonstrated actually a complete clearance of mRNA from a group of patients. So that's concerning. And then when you're adding, you know, boosters to that and adding this to the vaccine schedule, it's kind of like it's in there potentially forever. Yeah. And if we're eating on a daily basis, right. you know, we're getting repeated essentially administration of foreign mRNA in our body. So regardless of constructs, again, of, of it being the COVID vaccine, it is still a synthetic genetic disruptor. And that's really the big concern here. Okay. So all pretty wild and disconcerting for sure. Um, let's go ahead and talk produce now, I guess. Um, so GMOs hit the market in 1994 and this first started with tomatoes. Yes. Let's just cover what GMOs are and why they are concerning as well as some of the labeling concerns. So GMOs are genetically modified organisms and these provide a, in quotes, improved outcome. Uh, so this can often be an improved outcome to resistance to certain damaging insects or a improved outcome to have higher tolerance of chemical additives, go figure. So higher tolerance of certain herbicides to control weeds. Now, the tomato that came out in 1994 was a tomato that was allowed to go to colder temperatures without having tissue and water changes in it so that it could be carried in cooler trucks to prevent bruising and breaking of tomatoes. So there could be some qualitative elements that GMOs are used for as well. The issues of concern are that the genetically modified organism can 
escape from a controlled environment and this can introduce the engineered genes into wild populations we heard a lot about that with like corn farmers for instance and that's the concern that you know maybe at this point even organic yellow corn can it truly be organic and now we've been saying well maybe the blue corn's safer because at least we know that that has more kind of an heirloom genetic presence but the persistence of a altered gene um, after it's been harvested can have an impact on future crops, of course. And um, this can also be a concern when we're talking about the susceptibility of non-targeted organisms. So, you know, maybe there's pollinators that also have an unfavorable response because they were able to spray higher insecticide and that's taken out populations of beneficial uh bugs, if you will, or that the plant itself is toxic for consumption for that bug. Um, the stability of the gene that's been modified is concerning and what that would do to the consumer, literally down to the level of that consumer's DNA. Uh, there's also concern about toxicology and neurological impact. And there's concern about allergic reactivity. So for instance, they've used in the tomato um, experiment part of a fluorescent fish that was able to go in really cold waters. And that was what was induced into the genes of the tomato to help with that Arctic um, support or the colder temperature threshold. And yet that tomato be purchased as a tomato and wouldn't right. say contains, contains fish. fish. <laughs> so that could be concerning if someone had an actual allergy and then could have like an anaphylactic response. Totally. Um, let's head a little deeper on corn, which is a very common GMO crop. We're looking at over 93% as GMO. And there's kind of two kinds here, right? Yeah. So there is the BT corn, which uses the BT endotoxin. Um, and then there's also the Roundup Ready corn. So the BT GMO corn was designed to kill a susceptible insect um, as a part of the plant contains the BT protein. And um, it's, it's like bacil it's, it's a type of a um, bacteria protein compound. And um, what's concerned is that basically the insect is going to ingest the BT ready corn. And within minutes, the protein binds to the insect's gut wall and the insect stops feeding. And then within hours, that insect's gut wall breaks or perforates and the bacteria of the bug invades its bodily cavity and it dies of septicemia. Basically, the bacteria in the body multiply in the blood of the bug and their colon explodes. And that's quite disgusting. But when we think of this mechanistically, it's not too far of a leap to say, you know, if corn is ubiquitous and in every single processed food, and most of it has this gut wall disrupting compound that we know by its mechanism of function, destroys the gut walls of insects, how much can safely be consumed for humans without having an impact as a contributor towards leaky gut or, you know, intestinal permeability, driving food sensitivity and autoimmune disease. Totally. So it's magnified, you know, with how much corn people are consuming at yeah, this point. No doubt. And then the Roundup Ready GMO crop is able to withstand higher amounts of the herbicide glyphosate. So that's, again, the active ingredient in Roundup. And we know that glyphosate, that's what came on the heels of that DDT, as I was mentioning, but it has been linked to research as a neurotoxin and an endocrine disrupting compound. It can throw off our neurotransmitters that play a role in regulating mood and brain function. We think about kiddos with like ADHD and ADD on the rise and the whole world of autism. 
We look at a interference on our stress response, including even neurological damage. We see neuropathy as a big symptom of individuals that are spraying or applying this as a career. We also see diabetes as an endocrine disruptor. This can interfere with insulin and driving diabetic dysfunction. And we can even see as an endocrine disruptor, sexual hormone imbalance. So, you know, both in their own right, the BT endotoxin and the Roundup GMO corn are going to drive dysfunction in our gut microbiome. They're going to impair digestion, which will reduce our absorption of nutrients. And then there's their own individual toxicity contributing factors as well. Totally. And and not to mention, you know, Roundup, we're looking at, <laughs> they basically created the problem and the solution all in one, and it's all Monsanto owned, right? Not like, surprising. Not surprising at all. Yes. Um, and then although not GMO, let's touch on, I guess it's called appeal. Um, yeah. A-P-E-E-L, the new produce coating. Um, what does this do and where are we finding this one? So this appeal sciences is based out of California and it's partnered with, believe it or not, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, and this in itself has caused an eyebrow raise uh, for many. Um, especially those that are following the money and trends and again the grasps for corporate control of our food system I was not able to find a lot on it as far as health risks or concerns. It's basically an edible film that creates a waxy-like barrier that is aimed to stop produce from losing its moisture, which then would slow down the spoilage or kind of the softening. Um, It's tasteless and odorless and colorless, and it is edible. And it's currently actually allowed for both organic and conventional crops. Um, Currently, they're stating that it is non-GMO and it's coming from plant-derived materials um, from peels, seeds, and pulp, as well as stems from fruits and vegetables. Grape kept being brought up as one. But again, think of the grape toxicity in the States and the amount of glyphosate Mm -hmm. that's in the skins of grapes. Um, The company basically extracts and processes lipids and glycerol lipids to create the appeal barrier. So comes from maybe byproducts of plant-derived materials, but the extraction, I couldn't find any information on what chemicals and mechanical processes extract lipids from these low-fat compounds and make these glycerol lipids to create this waxy-like Um, texture and function. Um, So I'm a little bit hesitant and concerned, A, because of where the money's coming from and the goals of said individual. Um, And then again, the fact that this is a kind of fatty acid wax coming from a non-fatty compound and, and, and what's going on mechanistically to produce that. And there's just not transparency that's available right now to consumers on that information. Right. And you could be buying organic or following, you know, at least the dirty dozen and really to, trying to do right by your family and still getting exposed to this stuff. Yeah. Um, so let's go back um, to talking a little bit more about glyphosate, which is in Roundup, um, and how it sterilizes the microbiome and is a soil killer as yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, 
everywhere, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, when we talked with that fifth generation agriculturist, um, we can link his episode too, when we talked about soil health um, and comparing that getting into human health and the need of, of viable soil, uh, he talked about how glyphosate in the last decade has been using also as a dehumidicant or a drying agent. And so, so not only is the glyphosate being applied as an herbicide, right, to prevent weeds and such, it's also being used post-harvest and applied again. And we're seeing, we looked at, for instance, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, an analysis of 650 children, and 87% of them had detectable levels of the toxic herbicide glyphosate in their urine. Um, We know that food is the primary source of exposure, and um, we know that this glyphosate is found in a lot of child-friendly foods. Um, So we've talked about in past episodes like Cheerios, for instance, oats, um, a lot of these grain-based products. um, And then as they become more processed, they still retain this chemical compound and are finding their way into a regular daily consumption for children and adults alike. Um, And again, this is a known cancer-causing weed killer that they're basically eating daily, especially if they're consuming any processed foods. Um, There was a 17-member panel of scientists that reviewed a thousand peer-reviewed published studies on the potential carcinogenity of this chemical, and they found that this is highly probable to be carcinogenic to humans, and that was in 2015. Really scary. And like, you know, some of the gluten-free alternatives, like I was told by Noah's school, hey, he's gluten-free. He can have the Cheerios on Cheerio day. And I was like, well, he's also glyphosate-free. So (laughs) no, he cannot. Or like Annie's bunnies, you think you're making a better choice by at least going gluten-free, but unfortunately we're not. Right. In 2020, the Environmental Workers Group looked at an analysis of laboratory tests showing glyphosate being off the charts in more than 90% of non-organic hummus and chickpea samples. And that's like, again, a halo food Mm -hmm. that you would think, oh, you know, maybe we'll just buy this. It's okay if it's not organic. Um, But, you know, these are finding their way into the food system. Oats, And any dried grains that are then becoming like a flour-based base in a processed food is going to have high amounts of this residue. And we really want to start to, and that's a movement of why we've already recommended grain-free for kids. Um, But another reason beyond the folic acid and the synthetic enrichment and MTHFR, that whole wheelhouse, another reason would be from pesticide residue and insecticide residue. Totally. And it's super wild when you see the charts of testing on some of these halo foods and they're higher than the... You know, yeah, gluten containing alternative and whatnot. Um, and that episode was 307 How Soil Impacts Your Health with yeah. um, Alan Williams. So I'll be sure to link that where we go a little bit deeper into glyphosate and some of its kind of off label uses, if you will. Um, and then there's this other pesticide, chlormiquat, yes. I want to call it. Um, let's cover this one and why that's concerning. Yeah. So federal regulators currently are poised to allow U.S. farmers to start applying this pesticide, which was currently or prior restricted to non-food uses. And they're now starting to see an approval. The Environmental Protection Agency announced a proposed decision to allow the first ever use of this chlormiquat 
chloride on wheat, barley, oats, and a hybrid of rye called tryctical. Um, and we've seen that what this can do as far as a mechanism and why they want it approved, um, it's actually aimed at helping farmers limit the bending and breaking of small grains. It's a condition called lodging that occurs in harvesting, and this is where yields can be reduced. But the pesticide acts as a growth regulator. It controls the plant size and it blocks hormones that stimulate growth prior to bloom. Um, this is highly concerning because we've seen laboratory research linked to this chemical with problems with reproduction as well as development. And the EPA should really not be putting people and animals at this risk of exposure. Um, again, it was never approved to be used for food consumption. Um, and the consideration that now it's been approved would be that this could be finding itself in, again, all of these grain-like foods with impact on growth and reproductive health and also disrupting hormonal function. Okay, and that's not currently out, but it's it's pending is what you're saying, yeah? Yeah, okay. and um, again, the EPA approved it. Okay. So people will start using it yeah. and there will be, because there's money behind it, there Ugh. will be a push for residue um, levels have changed already. Um, and so the Center for Food Safety, um, actually, which is a public advocacy health group, um, they're concerned and, and they're saying that this rule will lead to an astronomical rise in the domestic use of chlor chlormaquat. And they're estimating that the use of this pesticide would increase 28,000 fold. So currently maximum residue levels range from like two parts per million to 10. And we're looking at them going widely up into the 14 plus oats actually hitting new tolerances of 40 parts per million um, of this endocrine hormone disrupting compound. And it won't just stay in those grains. It's because it's sprayed and applied, it will be finding its way into drinking water, um, which will also then become contaminated with the pesticide, which can then get into our animals and of course, direct into humans. There's not a peer-reviewed study, um, of course, that can look at the tested time of bioaccumulation. All these studies look at like a one-time mm -hmm. feed. And the studies that are out there are bad. Um, there was actually a concern of the offspring of rats that were exposed to this chemical having problems with growth and development. There was negative impact on bone development and fertility. Um, it's a very clear endocrine disrupting neurotoxic compound. And the studies we've seen have only been on rats, mice, and dogs dogs, all with bad, harmful effects. Okay. We're looking at you, oat milk drinkers. Yeah. One, one more reason. Good Please point. don't do it because it gets so highly concentrated in something like a beverage where it's kind of extracted and whatnot. Yes. But I, I digress. Um, let's talk a little bit. You alluded to close, some yes. of the, <laughs> the fires. Um, yes. This is really scary stuff. And I see you've got quite a long list of um, the locations of them, but let's talk about what's going on with the fires and these random, you know, incidents like a plane crashing into a processing center. How often does that yeah, happen? Yeah, man. And so, you know, just two months ago, there was a Texas fire that killed 18,000 cows. It was the deadliest barn fire in the history of the U.S. 18,000 cows died in an explosion and fire at a dairy farm in West Texas. Um, we've seen in Minnesota a chicken egg farm exploding. We've seen 200,000 chickens killed in that incident. Um, we've seen meat packing plants with $30,000 of estimated damage from a fire that was contained within 15 minutes. 
Um, we've seen a farm that sold 3 million eggs per day to some of the nation's largest retailers up a blaze and completely lose all of that. Mercopa Food Pantry, 50,000 pounds of food lost. Walmart Fulfillment Center had a total loss and permanently closed. And this is one of the largest fulfillment centers in the country. I mean, from dairy milking barn to meat processor to egg to direct family farms, we have seen so many dynamic losses. And the consideration and concern is, is there foul play from these big conglomerate threaters like threateners like the DFA um, or, you know, some of these large organizations that are saying, you know, grow big or get out um, for people that are trying to do it with integrity and maybe in the way of nature or the way of God versus this man-made production algorithm focused need this A plus B equals C calculation to produce so that we can create consistency in our food system, which we all know is just a ploy to, again, centralize and control. Right. I saw a map where it was kind of plotted all over the U.S., all of these incidents, and it's really quite frightening how much they've picked up in like even the past two years. Yeah. And we've seen like Amish be arrested. Mm -hmm. I mean, so much. It's wild. Okay. So that's all of the shock and awe. Um, (laughs) What can we do about this? Let's like take an exhale out because, you know, I don't think we can control all of what's going on in the higher ups, but what can we do on a household level, yes. on a level of our dollar spending and on a level of our individual families? So the first thing is to start to make strategic choices in securing your food system, right? So food as medicine and using food as medicine and freeing yourself from the constructs of pharmacological control means that you have to have access to your own pharmacy and that's F-A-R-M-A-C, right? Not P-H. So don't get comfortable. This would be a big piece of advice to listeners. Don't get comfortable with buying your organics or your natural food products at Costco or your grocery store. This is a temporary default and it is not going to last forever. And we are not going to be able to see the integrity of these products that we will from direct to consumer sales from smaller producers. We need to decentralize our food selection and we need to get to know our local farmers and growers. So this would mean frequenting your farmer's market. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes of how to find a farmer's market in your zip code. There's also really beautiful resource on how to find um, eatwild.org, I believe it is, but I'll I'll make sure I put in the show notes of how to get local raw milk, uh, grass-fed pasture-raised meats, and literally search by your zip code. This is where you start and you start purchasing, voting with your dollar, and then actually getting to know the humans that are nurturing and feeding and fueling your family. So there's that direct relationship. Yes. I think that's super, super important. And taking into account that, you know, these farmers markets, it might be a little bit more expensive because we want fair wages paid to the individuals who are producing the food. And, you know, I think we've dumbed down and and lost understanding of the true cost of food because of A, these subsidies, but B, places like Costco and, you know, big box organic 
producers that can sell to the HEB at less of a cost. So I think that's something we have to keep in mind as well and budget appropriately. Yeah, I was looking at like national statistic budgets and they're putting food at 10 to 15% of your income. And I think that realistically (laughs) it needs to be about 30%. Uh Uh Um, And so, you know, that's something that you might need to come to peace with and and do some rebudgeting. It was so wild that they had medical home and auto insurance at 25% of your budget. So I'm like, why am I paying for a oh shit policy and not the what's actually going in to my body and becoming an integral part of my being? That doesn't right. line up that for me at all. Sense. And, and if you increase the food, you can dial down the reliance on the pharma and the medical and all of the things, right? Yeah. And then that comes into the next thing is what types of investments can you make for self-sustainability and what levels of production can you play a direct role in, you know? And so can you have a garden that you start to grow? Can you get some backyard chickens? Um, the cost of food is just not appropriate right now, as you mentioned. And that's because when we look at fast food, they're using a lot of byproducts. They're using things like textured vegetable protein, not pure proteins. And they're just not as nutrient dense. They're cheaper to produce and they're likely including harmful ingredients for sure. Okay. So stop eating the cheap, crappy processed foods. Spend your money on whole real food that you know who grew it, where it was grown, what it was grown in, and like actually get to know the farmer, like have a conversation, show up every week, ask them how things are going and how they do things on their farm. Do they vaccinate their cattle? Right. Right. Good question. Absolutely. And, And letting them know because you're the direct input. Um, and I'd also say, you know, watch out for like the health halo foods. Like we called out Costco as one, um, but just generally going grain free versus like all the cassava chips and pretzels and all these things, they're going to have more pesticide residues just because there are going to be more ingredients total and they're coming from different places. Stick to whole real foods. There's just a concern of the bioaccumulation of processed products. So the more you stick to whole real foods, the best single ingredients locally sourced as possible, grass fed, pasture raised food of the gods is what we're aiming for. I think we did it. All right. And then I will also put a link in the show notes on just some supplement considerations to offset and mitigate toxicity if you're traveling, if whatnot. We know relax and regulate would be one to consider. We know that there's a lot of research on glycine offsetting the effects of glyphosate. So that would be a big reason for relax and regulate as an evening GI lining support because a lot of these compounds are, as I mentioned, gut irritants, making sure your microbiome is rocking with a quality probiotic and doing our probiotic challenge. Cellular antiox with NAC and glutathione to get that antioxidant boost and protect your cells all the way down to the level of DNA. And that's where I'd also bring in our BioC Plus and our detox packs to help your body to manage resilience while living in this toxic, dirty world. And just big picture, be prepared, not scared, right? Focus on your local food community, decentralize, grow your own herbs, fruits, and vegetables, get chickens, spend some time outside, and know that we are all here for a reason and we are part of the change that is going to make this world a better place. Love it. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.